not bankruptcy because they're not bankrupt. Even though they're morally bankrupt, they're not, they're not financially bankrupt. Plain speak, yes, they're, they, are, they lose almost all their rights, if not all their rights. Welcome back to Parallel Justice, the podcast that dives into the crimes and cases that have dominated the national headlines through exclusive interviews with the very attorneys who fought the cases. Some of the discussion you hear today may be controversial. However, we know that silence, especially on tough issues, only enables and encourages wrongdoers. It's our goal to bring these issues to light so that we may have meaningful discourse around them. The views expressed in this podcast are those of our guests who are experts in these areas. Their opinions are invaluable. However, they do not necessarily reflect the views of the National Center for Victims of Crime. The topics we discuss may be disturbing and they are intended for adult audiences only. Some of these topics may also be triggering and we encourage you to practice good self-care and seek support. I'm Renee Williams, Executive Director of the National Center for Victims of Crime and your guide through this conversation. Now, let's start the show. Welcome back to another episode of Parallel Justice. As always, I'm Renee Williams, your host of Parallel Justice and the Executive Director of the National Center for Victims of Crime. I feel like there are two celebrities joining me today, and I've never said that on this podcast before. We have with us Jeff Anderson and Mike Finnegan from Jeff Anderson and Associates out of Minnesota. And Jeff and Mike have really been on the forefront of the Catholic Church litigation, and they have led so many of our members in in this litigation. And so Maybe I shouldn't have given them that much of an introduction when I'm going to say I'm going to let them introduce themselves. But Jeff and Mike, would you like to introduce yourselves? Sure. Well, this is uh, Jeff Anderson, and it's nice to be with you and all the colleagues uh, in our group. Um, I have been actually practicing law. I just counted yesterday for 47 years. And I know working with uh, survivors now since uh, 1982 and exclusively our firm, Jeff Anderson Associates has been working with and for survivors now for uh, three decades exclusively. It's a choice we've made and I'm honored to be standing with the brothers and sisters in this organization devoted to helping survivors and protecting kids in the future. And Mike? Yeah, hi, Renee. Uh, Mike Finnegan here. And I've been uh, working with uh, Jeff and the other people in our firm on behalf of uh, Courageous Survivors for the last 20 years uh, that I've been here. And it's an honor to be here today with, with you and all the people that are listening. Thank you. And as always, we are going to put in the show notes for, for all of our listeners so they can contact you, your website. Um, so keep an eye out for that. Now, On Parallel Justice, we've talked about a lot of institutional cases. This has become a recurring theme as it does in our line of work. Um, But we've never quite talked about the current state of what's going on with the Catholic Church right now. So we're here to talk specifically about the the case of the Camden Diocese. Um, But let's just start at the, the, the upper end of that. What was going on in Camden? And how much did it parallel what we've seen in the rest of the Catholic Church litigation? 
Well, this is uh, Jeff, and let me really give a broader context uh, uh, to that question. And the context in Camden is that they filed uh, in October of uh, 2021 for reorganization chapter 11. Um, uh, and the context for that filing was that they are the first diocese in New Jersey to have sought protection in chapter 11 um, because New Jersey had opened up a window of two years for survivors to bring any cause of action against the offender or any institution that allowed it to occur. And as a result of that a window, the Catholic bishops in New Jersey made a strategic decision to say, we're gonna go into a chapter 11 in Camden first. That was strategic. And that was a decision made by the bishop in Camden uh, in consultation with the Catholic bishops in New Jersey, in New York, and in particular, the Vatican. And um, the context of that decision in Jersey was, we want Canada to go first and then we wanna set the bar there for various reasons that we'll get into. The larger context and the significance of the Camden filing is also important because it is no secret to anybody uh, that will be listening to this uh, program that the Catholic bishops and the religious orders across this country have now made strategic decisions to seek refuge from scrutiny and accountability by using the bankruptcy code. Chapter 11 called reorganization. Some people call it bankruptcy. It's not bankruptcy because they're not bankrupt, even though they're morally bankrupt, they're not, they're not financially bankrupt, but they use reorganization or chapter 11 to get out from their liability to survivors and to escape a full measure of accountability that I, we know our individual jury system allows individual survivors through the crucible of the courtroom and jury trials. When uh, a reorganization gets filed, then the bankruptcy goes, goes into play. And I'm not gonna get into all the details of that, but a creditor's committee of survivors gets composed and we represent one of the members of the creditor's committee, a state court counsel. Bankruptcy, uh, bankruptcy firm gets hired by the creditor's committee and Lowenstein and Sandler got hired in the diocese of Camden who represent the committee. And uh, that bankruptcy and that reorganization uh, started to move at a really rapid pace. Uh, it drew a judge, Judge Pazluzny, that uh, wanted to put it on a fast docket, and the Catholic diocese and the Catholic bishops there uh, and their attorneys took a very aggressive approach. So there was a great deal of early contention uh, in the, uh, that reorganization. Uh, and us at odds with the Catholic bishop, Sullivan, uh, their lawyers, um, and um, the committee and bankruptcy council and state court council all came together and stood united and strong against them and did everything we could to expose their desire to suppress the survivors and avoid accountability. And so when the, uh, the insurers who are well known to us uh, cooked up a deal with the Catholic bishop and their attorneys, they proposed a, a, a settlement 
uh, to be approved by the bankruptcy court. We fought that immediately and uh, continued to um, file rigorous oppositions to that, but also continued in mediation. Um, the committee of survivors composing of, of, of nine survivors and uh, the bankruptcy firm and all the state court counsel, uh, all of whom are experienced in this space stood united and we really stood strong. And uh, by having stood united and stood strong against the diocese and what they were trying to do and set such a low bar here, um, we leveraged ultimately in mediation a settlement uh, um, that um, made a deal that was with the Catholic bishop, the Catholic diocese, and all of the parishes and entities controlled by that bishop. That would be the schools, the parishes, and the diocese itself. And the deal we crafted with uh, them, that is the bishop, the parishes, and uh, the schools, is that they would agree to pay to the survivors the sum of $87.5 million. The insurers, the insurance companies are all out of that deal. And under that deal, the diocese, the parishes, and all the entities controlled by the bishop agree to assign their rights under their insurance policies to the survivors and the trust so that the survivors and all of them then through the trust can then prosecute coverage actions against the insurance companies, namely London Market Insurers, Interstate, AIG, and Century. But those are the rough contours of the deal that got struck. When that got struck, and from that day that that got announced to those insurers, they have, um, reacted uh, with horror um, uh, because they are now exposed in a way uh, to pay what they have, um, are obliged to pay under their insurance contracts and now uh, are facing obligations that they've never had to face before. And as a result, uh, that has triggered more rigorous litigation in chapter 11 in any of these cases that have gone before. So that was a great introduction um, and it gives us a fantastic roadmap for this conversation because I think a lot of times this is confusing to lawyers um, and we have a lot of non-lawyers that listen to this um, and, and we're trying to make it accessible to the non-lawyers. So I, I wanna understand Keep in mind, we've spoken to Mitch Garabedian about the historical Catholic cases, um, but we didn't really delve in in ways I think we can with you all about some of the things the Catholic Church has done to avoid this litigation and, and that bankruptcy and all of the hoops you just described is a great example. Um, 
but I think it's not even clear to the general public. How do they, how do they get into bankruptcy? So these are individual actions brought by courageous survivors working with individual law firms like ourselves and our brothers and sisters that represent those survivors one-on-one. -on -one. And then when there are a lot of cases like there were in Camden, over 300, and the diocese or the religious order, in this case, the diocese makes the choice to avoid the first trial that was coming up uh, or the first required disclosure of their files uh, that was coming up or some measure of accountability publicly and in the courtroom, then the diocese and the bishop uh, choose to seek refuge in chapter 11. So that's kind of the how, how and when it works and what causes them to choose to go into that, we'll get into that because we know what criterion they use that causes them to use chapter 11 is what we call their refuge. And now we usually, can, please go ahead. This yep. is Mike, I can add a little bit on the, uh, on the bankruptcy side of things. Uh, so the, the history of it was that uh, Jeff uh, primarily and uh, other lawyers like Mitch Garabedian uh, were bringing these cases individually. And it wasn't until uh, the early 2000s that as a country and as individual states that they saw the need for massive changes to the statute of limitations, the time limits. And those started to get opened up and gave survivors more of a chance to, to bring cases and get into litigation uh, that the, the bishops decided as a strategic plan that they were gonna use bankruptcy. And, uh, and when, there's, when there's a bankruptcy, there's basically two different types of bankruptcy. There's a chapter seven, which is liquidation. And then there's a chapter 11, which is reorganization. The first one, when you're liquidating under a chapter seven, that that's in simple terms is going out of business, turning the lights off, selling everything that that company has, it's no longer existing. So if you take a, you know, a small business that is, that is out, you know, selling some product, it means that, that they're going to wrap everything up. They're no longer in business after that, that chapter seven, that liquidation is done business is over. The other way that, that companies use and, and do it is through a liquidate, a, a reorganization, which is chapter 11. And so what the bishops have done is they've chosen the path of reorganization, chapter 11. And what that means is they get to go in there and we'll talk about the reasons why, because there's some really sinister reasons why they've used it. Um, but they go in there and, and then what chapter 11 does is it allows that, that that business here, the diocese to go in there and try and work out a settlement with their creditors. And then they're still in business afterwards. I'd like to get into what are some of those reasons, especially the sinister ones? How, how do they go about this? Well, they go into uh, and use chapter 11 because they and their insurers the Catholic bishop and the, the parishes that the bishop controls and all the other entities under his control all have learned uh, for the last decade that bankruptcy and the bankruptcy code favors the debtors. The debtors are the corporations. 
the corporations created the bankruptcy code and a set of transactions that favor the rich, the wealthy, and the powerful, which are the corporations. And well, that's and I imagine why- it's a way to try to remove morality as well. You're not litigating morality, you're litigating, are they poor? And, every, and everything in the bankruptcy code treats every claim as a debt or a transaction. So the whole process is transactional, presided over by a bankruptcy judge who doesn't really work from the heart, but works from the, a transactional paradigm. Creditors and debtors, that's all they see, creditors and debtors. And how do we get this debtor uh, out of reorganization, out, out of bankruptcy, out of chapter 11 and back on their feet so they could continue to make money. And it was written by the corporations and, and the Catholic bishops realized they are favored because they have the same alliance as them and the insurance industry. And so when they go in, they make the decision in concert with their insurers uh, that it is to the advantage of the insurers. Why is it to the advantage of the insurers? Is it, it is because historically the values and of settlements in reorganization are lower than what a lot lower than what the insurers also when they come out of reorganization, make a deal where they're off the hook for all future claims and the bishop uh, and its entities, once they get out of reorganization are all off the hook for all future claims. So it is a great place for them to go to cut off their future liability as, as well as um, um, pay um, less than they otherwise would have to if they were in the tort system. And the yeah the the history of Renee also is uh, is uh, really illustrates uh, another reason the sinister one that I had in my head of why the bishops uh, have used this historically and again it started back in the early two thousands and uh, what happened and what they do is that the bishops made the choice to use reorganization to cut off the exposure of their long held secrets and their secret files from having to testify under oath. And so what happened in Portland was one of the first ones that went right on the eve of trial. It was right before there was gonna be a public trial, expose everything that happened in that diocese. And to stop that, the Bishop files for reorganization bankruptcy that puts an automatic stay, automatic stop on any of the state court litigation, pushes it all into this bankruptcy system. Uh, Camden and a lot of the others, the lawsuits are starting to move forward. And this is, is going on in New York as well. Survivors are asking for their secret files. So each one of the bishops have files that they have. They have all the evidence of child sex abuse going back 50, 100 years. They keep it under lock and key. And, uh, and the, the windows and the Child Victims Act that have been uh, enacted in places like New Jersey that gave survivors a chance to get those documents. Survivors are getting closer and closer and closer to getting those. And that's when the bishops largely have decided we're going to file reorganization. It stops all of that, takes all that power away from survivors. That's the, the really uh, tactical, sinister reason that a lot of the bishops have used reorganization. So reason number one that I gave was it gives them an opportunity to pay less to the survivors and thus avoid full accountability. Reason number two that Mike uh, just um, 
express is that it gives them a chance to stop all litigation in state court and all the cases, puts an immediate stop to it and turns it all over to the bankruptcy court to handle. Mm -hmm. and, and, I think and then reason number three is uh, it gives them a chance then to thus continue to hide offenders. It gives them a chance to continue to hold on to and thus hide the files that we force in litigation to be disclosed as a part of litigation that they keep on all the offenders called the secret files and all the personnel files. It also gives them a chance also uh, to also uh, hide assets. The bankruptcy code requires them to make disclosures of assets, of their ability to pay. Uh, but the reason we say that they use the chapter 11 to hide assets is they do make disclosures that are required, but they always under report and under disclose their true ability to pay. And they hide their assets into various entities controlled by the bishop. So the bishop will file for reorganization in the corporation of the bishop, but then we'll have assets that he's put into each of the 138 parishes where they hold assets, investment funds, cash and other assets that aren't in bankruptcy, but then they stop the litigation against those parishes. And as a result, then they can use uh, a shell game and create all these piggy banks for the bishop to hide the assets and thus um, they, uh, they use uh, the code and uh, chapter 11 to um, avoid any measure of real and full accountability. And that's why uh, there are so many in which we and the survivors and other colleagues are involved that are now so contentious because um, there is a lot, uh, uh, there is a lot at stake here. And, and I, for the public, you both said this, but I really want to bring it to the forefront. And then I'm going to ask a very rookie question. You both mentioned this cuts off all future litigation. So once you've entered bankruptcy and, and we keep calling them creditors, but in this case, the creditors are the victims. And so once you go into bankruptcy, any future creditors have a certain amount of time to make a claim or you're out that works in bankruptcy court. But what the practical effect is, is any victims who remember later in therapy that they were abused, who try to come forward are out. Is that what we're talking about here? Yep, they're either plain out speak. Their, their rights are plain speak, yes, they're, they, are, they lose almost all their rights, if not all their rights. And so it's a, it, is, it is the exact opposite of of what uh, a trauma-informed approach should be for survivors, and the exact opposite of what uh, you know of what is best for survivors. Uh, but it is the the one of the tragic things about the system is that it it cuts off everybody that was abused before that bankruptcy got filed. Well, and so that was my next big question. Is the lead-up question is the rookie question? 
what duty does the church have? Do they have any to say, hey, if you were a victim, you need to come forward. Do, do they have any obligation to tell people that they might be cut off one? And then two, if they do get cut off, what are their chances of fighting this? Well, so the obligation, this is Mike. Uh, the first one, uh, Renee, there is a, uh, for every, this, this applies for every uh, corporation that goes into, uh, into chapter 11 and a reorganization, the, the bankruptcy court forces them to give notice to anybody that they know about that might be a creditor. So here, like you said before, it's a victim survivors. Uh, but what we know is unfortunately that most people don't come forward and can't come forward. And, uh, you know, and there's a, a huge class of survivors uh, that I've been worried about for a long time that are, that are the ones that are young, that are really young, that have been recently abused before these entities go into bankruptcy and even if they read something or get notice, a kid that is still a minor or even somebody that's in their 20s, 30s, most of them are not coming forward no matter what. They're not at a place where they can do that. And uh, those, you know, those are people that are um, even with notice, you know, this system cuts them off, unfortunately. So wait, there's no protection for minors, just to be loud and clear about that. It's so the way that they do it, this, it gets a little complicated, but uh, in my mind, they, I mean, they're, they're taking away their rights. So they're effectively nullifying both statutes of limitations and any states that have passed the Child Victims Act. Yes. Essentially. Yes. So how do you fight that? You just continue to fight. Uh, it is a due process violation. Uh, the bankruptcy courts obviously have been unreceptive to our pleas that this is a violation of due process. And uh, they, so far it has not gotten up on an appeal where it has been ripe for uh, challenging of the, the due process. And the reality uh, uh, rights of survivors uh, created by state law, um, it will ultimately get decided down the road, but the way the whole bankruptcy process works you have to get through it before you can get it up to a, a court that isn't a bankruptcy court and into a district court or a state court uh, or a federal district court and an appellate court and it has yet to get there. Uh, it will get there someday and hopefully sooner rather than later, but that is a battle yet to be fought and certainly one that rages. As we And speak. I think the tragic thing that, that people need to hear and we call it the perfect case, the perfect case for appeal, even though that sounds horribly cold. In this case, it will have to be a case that failed. So a victim, a child who has been abused is going to have to go through the litigation process, which is already brutal, and it will have to fail in order to fight because you will need somebody to appeal. Well, when they cut off the, when they create these deadlines for making claims, they cut off, they cut off 80% of the survivors. They cut off 90% of the actual survivors that were abused in that regular, that diocese. That, that is a reality. And they're required to put notices in newspapers and, and sometimes TV and radio and the like. But the reality is we all know survivors aren't capable of coming forward and most of them don't get the notices. And so it works entirely to the benefit of the Catholic diocese to cut off these rights that the legislature confers and, um, and it is an outrage. A kid 20 years from now comes forward and wants to sue. 
so none of these so far uh, in the uh, 30 uh, plus uh, Catholic bankruptcies that either bishops or religious order have filed, none of them have held have had that future claims fund uh, for more than I think the longest is seven years. So at the end of that seven years, they're out completely. And so done, that, that all rights are cut off at that point. Uh, and so, uh, but if we change your hypothetical a little bit and there's a kid that comes forward uh, within that seven years, we'll say that that's the, the deadline, then uh, that survivor, he or she would have to bring a claim uh, within the, the bankruptcy trust system that, that gets set up. Uh, and they'd have to assert that claim within that, that system, but their rights are incredibly compromised and they don't have the ability to use the jury system. They don't have a, a, the ability to do much there other than just assert that claim, say they're abused and try and get a little bit of that money. Uh, but that's it. And then once that time limit is up for the future claims, everybody's cut off. All survivors that were abused in the past are completely cut off at that point. The second battle line and raging literal war is against the insurance industry. And it's not just those insurers involved in Camden, but it's all the commercial insurers uh, across the country that have been underwriters for Catholic diocese and religious orders and all the big insurers from CNA to Transamerica uh, uh, to uh, AIG, uh, you name it, they wrote policies. They stopped writing policies in the mid 80s because of their exposure. But the reality is they're in these cases and we're at war with that industry. And that industry has been in collusion with the Catholic bishops and the diocese for decades. The third battle line is against the bankruptcy bar. The bankruptcy bar from the judges to the lawyers uh, to that whole industry of corporations and insurers and all of them that created the code are all sweeping or making a, a, a real significant effort to sweep all tort -like legal liability against wrongdoers and corporations and now Catholic dioceses into the bankruptcy code and out of the tort system. And so we're now at war with the whole bankruptcy system uh, because for reasons we've already stated. And so um, the reality is that in New York, as an example of the, I think there are eight dioceses in New York, four of, uh, four of which have already declared for uh, chapter 11 in which we're all involved. And there's two more likely to go. In Minnesota, there were, when we had a window there, uh, there were six dioceses, uh, five of which all went into chapter 11. And we're facing the same prospects in California where we have an open window now. And the same thing's happening any place that the statute of limitations gets opened up. So um, make no mistake, the, there are several um, uh, battle lines um, and um, uh, raging as we speak, uh, not just against the Catholic diocese and the perpetrators, um, and not just against uh, the insurers, commercial and captive, uh, but rather uh, the whole bankruptcy code that deprives uh, all the survivors and individual survivors of so many rights they otherwise would have. Well, and I want to talk about all of your survivors for a minute and, and really bring it home on the reason that 
I think we've moved past the question of why would we sue the Catholic Church? And I think the Catholic Church's accountability has been more than established. But I think one thing people miss and that they don't hear from survivors enough is the act of the perpetrator was one thing, the betrayal of the church who was supposed to protect these children is its own other thing. It's its own other, it's almost more painful than the act itself. The, the lengths that the Catholic church has gone through to cover this and to protect priests who did this when they were supposed to be protecting the people that go to church, their flock. Um, do you want to talk about any of your survivors in that regard or how they're doing? Well, you know, that is a, it's a conversation that always needs to be had. And in the context of today's conversation, I think everybody that works in this space knows um, how difficult it is to first share the secret and then take an action as a Jane Doe, as a John Doe, and uh, or as in in their name and how difficult litigation is. When a wrongdoers, um, such as the Catholic diocese, seek refuge in chapter 11, they actually cause further harm and aggravate the harm that has already been caused to each of those survivors uh, as children. And most of the survivors that do come forward are, you know, somewhere over, you know, the age of 30 and uh, they and up to 80 and or 90 years old oftentimes. And the reality is that salt gets poured in their wounds by the process of a, a diocese seeking uh, uh, chapter 11 protection. And then survivors are required to go through the rigors of making claims in bankruptcy. And while their anonymity is well protected in the process, and I'm glad of that, and I've never had nor will we see anybody's uh, anonymity violated um, in the bankruptcy process. And they have been protective of that. The process itself um, makes survivors feel like uh, their voice doesn't count as much. Bankruptcy fees in these reorganization cases are staggering. Oh, I'm sure. Staggering. And they come out of the bankruptcy estate. That means out of the funds that otherwise would be available to the survivors and the Catholic bishops across the board plead poverty. They say, we don't have the funds, we can't pay. And as a result, they suppress a lot of the settlements in a lot of the cases. Make no mistake about it on the sheer ability to pay, both because they're successful at hiding assets and they're successful in convincing bankruptcy judges to not let the survivors do enough discovery to discover the assets, which happened in Minnesota. Five of the Catholic dioceses, the the bishop, I mean, the judge kept the committee and our side and the survivors from doing discovery of the assets of the true ability to pay. And as a result, the settlements that were reached by necessity were under the under the true value of the ability of the the five Catholic dioceses to really pay. We, for example, discerned that the Archdiocese of St. Paul in Minneapolis had an ability to pay uh, when you look at their liquid assets and their real estate alone and the assets held in parishes that exceeded a billion dollars. The settlement 
on behalf of close to 400 survivors was $210 million, which would appear to be on their books as represented by them to be fair value. But when we know what we really knew and weren't able to excavate, it was a bad deal. So Jeff and Mike, that is about all the time we have for today, but I never like to leave any loose ends open or let anybody think, darn it, I wish I would have said that. So any last minute thoughts for our listeners? Well, I do uh, have a last minute thought and it's one of the most important things that can be said. And I usually open any conversation with it. And that is first giving credit to uh, the courageous survivors. Uh, with whom we and our colleagues have had a chance to work, who have found uh, the courage and a way to come forward and share a painful secret and take some action. And to each survivor um, with whom we and all of our colleagues have the privilege and the honor to work, uh, we just need to give you, each man, each woman, each person, credit for having stood up, not just for yourself uh, and uh, your truth, but to know that individually by having done so, by having shared it publicly as a Jane Doe or as a John Doe and taken an individual action, wherever you are, you have also done something to protect other kids in the future and thus made the community safer. And each survivor needs to know that and to each survivor credit is due for protecting kids in the child protection movement. That is a reality that always needs to be acknowledged and said, and we are all privileged to stand on their shoulders. The second thing that needs to be said here and now is, is the creditors and, uh, and the survivors that assemble in these committees and in Camden in particular, the amount of pressure that was put on by the Catholic bishop to try to force them and jam them into a, a settlement was so intense because they're obliged to speak on behalf of all the survivors, but they stood strong and they stood united and they said, no, this is wrong and we will fight and we will continue to fight. And to each of them, the credit is so deserved for their courage and their stamina. And there are now uh, uh, at least a dozen other survivors called creditors committees that we're working with in New York and elsewhere that are under the same kind of pressure. And we just want to, on behalf of all of us working with them, give them credit for their devotion, their courage, their stamina, their persistence and the difference that each of them make every time they stand up and share their truth and share them with each of us. And to them, we stand in humbly in gratitude. One of the best last thoughts we've had. Thank you for joining us for this conversation. If you have any questions about your rights after listening to the show, please visit us at victimsofcrime.org. Our guest's information is also always available in the show notes. This podcast was created by the National Center for Victims of Crime in partnership with our center and affiliate, the National Crime Victim Bar Association. 
More information about both organizations is available at victimsofcrime.org and victimbar.org. Thank you, and please join us again next week.